morning, our text is from Galatians 3, and we'll be looking at 27, and we'll go into 4 uh, through, se- uh, through uh, 1 through 7. And so this morning, uh, if we can, let us uh, read our word together. Um, and so this morning, starting in of, uh, 27 here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we open your word, as we have stared at it and listened. Lord, I pray that we continue to hear as you speak this morning through the text. Lord, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all that transpires, yes, even with the preacher's tongue, but also with the listener's ear. And Lord, we pray that your word would not depart from us and we would not depart from it, but Lord, that it would give full fruit in the lives of your people. We love you. We thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated this morning. Well, this morning... Our uh, text, or, or excuse me, the sermon title is Heirs Through Christ, and we will be looking at this issue of adoption, issue of adoption this morning, or, or we know this as the doctrine of adoption. Uh, as we continue on, I just want to let you know something really, really quick. Normally, on Sunday morning when we get ready to do a sermon, I have some points. This morning is not a point-based sermon. This morning, we're going to step through the text. Uh, we're just kind of like pull back a sliver here and keep pulling back a sliver here until we get the end of verse 7. We will start in 27 in uh, chapter 3. Uh, but what I want you to understand this morning is this. Continuing his basic argument, the Apostle Paul Uh, In that salvation is not gained by man's merit or works, as we've been looking at, but solely by God's grace, working through faith. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we understand that that grace, that grace and faith is in itself a gift from God. Paul then makes a powerful declaration, uh, which truthfully and honestly, church, I believe is foundational to all of biblical Christianity. In other words, what we're about to read and look at again has massive implications for the way in which we serve God, in the way in which we meet in this place and worship Him, and it has massive implications in the way that we view other people, not like us or out there somewhere. And this morning, if you look with me once again, look at 327, and we'll look at 29. And I want to talk about this really quickly in our introduction. And it says there in the text, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. As many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, he goes in to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Now, let me just go ahead and, it doesn't mean that there's no longer male and female. Uh, we live in a day and age which is having, people are having a hard time figuring that out, right? That's not what this is meaning. It's meaning men and women. We are equal at the foot of the cross. And he goes on to say, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. To that I give a hearty amen. Because, do you understand how incredibly radical this concept is to Judaism, specifically in Jesus' day? The fact that the Apostle Paul would write something like this, and the fact that Jesus Christ modeled it and taught it before Paul ever spoke it in this letter, is radical to what Judaism was. When Jesus Christ goes and touches lepers with his hands, when he sits and eats with tax collectors, when he's seen with harlots, basically, when he's literally sitting there drinking from the woman at the well's cup with his own lips, he is communicating something that in Judaism was not communicated. That somehow or another, people are equally treated with us. In Judaism, that was not the case. In Judaism, it was, we are special, we are awesome, we are good, everybody else just hopes to be like us. Uh, Jews in Jesus' day were a lot like Texans today, right? Everybody, you know, uh, you, when did you get here? Well, you got here as soon as you can. Everybody wants to be a Texans, Texans believe, right? Jews believed that this is the way in which people came to know God. Ostracized, downcast, change, be different. Walk this way, look like me, smell like me, dress like me, talk like me, and then maybe possibly God can love you too. This is the reason, church, for us, if you're a member of this church, if you're thinking about becoming a member of this church, there's a covenant that we sign together as a church, specifically new people coming through. And in our church covenant, we have number two. The church covenant is actually listed right there in the back of the church. So I want us to always be reminded of the things that we're promising to one to another. Uh, number two on our covenant says this, I will accept and fellowship with all members Regardless of race, gender, background, social status, or level of education, since all have equal value in Christ. Basically, what I want you to know, and it shouldn't even be a thing that I even have to say from the pulpit, racism has no place in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Racism has no place in the church that seeks to honor Jesus Christ. And to be really frank, racism has no place here at College Acres. It has no place in all of Christianity, and I say this in a very loving way. Don't, don't, I'm, not, I'm, not trying to, well, I'm not coming to blows, but it will not be tolerated here. It will not be tolerated here. Because the message of the gospel is a message for all. Not only for all that Paul establishes here when it comes to creed and race and gender. However, it is also for any and every background. The gospel is for every horrible, rotten, past choice that some of you have made in this room. The gospel speaks forth and past that in your life. The gospel is it's for anyone who has, regardless of your upbringing in this room this morning. Whatever has been done to you, I am sorry, but it does not define you. Amen? I am sorry for that thing, but it doesn't define you in Jesus Christ. It no longer has mastery, sway, or it doesn't have to have power over you any longer. That is also an aspect of the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what any one of us says about each other, but what does God say of us? When that becomes our marching order, brothers and sisters, it frees you to be you. And it frees you, listen to what I'm about to say in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it frees you to be enough. Not enough of yourself, but because Jesus Christ is enough. He is enough. It nonetheless, although it meets you where you are, it finds you as you are, it speaks to all of those who are in this uh, situation, it nonetheless always, always will seek to see you changed from whatever that is. The gospel is offensive. It can be offensive too. But it is offensive in the sense that the gospel, the gospel comes. It comes and says, let me declare to you something good. What is good points always to Jesus and what he has done. What the gospel does, it, it, it never says, the gospel never comes to you, brothers and sisters, in this room and says, hey, do this and then. That is not the gospel. 
says in Romans 8.1. Now, there is no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, those in Romans 8.1 are meaning those, meaning all of those, meaning no qualification save that of being in Jesus Christ. If you look with me in the text, it says something in 27. It says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. I want to know something a little bit real quick about baptism. All of those who are baptized into Christ. Now, what I want you to understand about baptism is this. Baptism is a declaration, a physical, outwardly witness declaration to everyone who is watching, hopefully, of a truth that we're trying to declare outwardly. It's an inside truth. In baptism, if you know the symbolism of such things, you go into the water as you were, and you come out, amen, praise God, hallelujah, new in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Now what baptism represents is all those who are in Christ, all those who literally have basically gotten naked, listen to me, unclothe yourself of all that you were. Those of you who have said, no longer do I wear these clothes. These clothes die in the water that gets poured out after the baptism. It's a declaration. And in baptism, it's a taking off of old clothes. It's declarative. And then, as you rise up out of the water, and that's symbolic, I'm talking about all of life and Christianity, putting on Christ. Putting on Christ is putting on the new clothes. It's redressing, and the dressing is the wearing and the walking in the new clothes that is Christ. That is our witness. Baptism taking off, declarative, rising and living anew, new clothes, witness. He says here, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, because of that, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. This is what I love about the church, brothers and sisters. And I think that honestly, this is the thing that's so countercultural. And you want to talk about a relevant church? Let me tell you how it gets relevant. It gets relevant that when many people in this room, you know, niche groups are easy to form. You know that? We could be the church or the underwater basket weaving church, right? Everybody comes together. We all love what, everybody gets along. Nobody argues. No one fights. Why? Because we all love water, underwater basket weaving, right? You know? Thing is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all, we all take off some tor- sort of clothing, and we put on new clothing. The new clothing is Christ. It would be a wonderful day in the life of our church and many churches if, honestly, you see, you see people getting together that should not be together. You, you know what I'm getting at? Like, okay, for instance, like me, like I'm this guy who likes hunting, raised in a trailer park, you know, in North, uh, Gastonia, North Carolina. Hello, proud of it. All right? And then you got a guy from Southside Chicago, maybe he's an African-American brother, he likes different music than me. Here's the thing, you look at us and you get some guy from California, he's a skateboard guy, he loves ska, what the world? And we're getting together, we're having a cup of coffee, we're over at the local Starbucks, people are looking at us going, man, is this is a circus in town? One of these things does not like the other, one of these things just simply do not belong. What do these people have in common? We have in common our love and adoration for Jesus Christ and our witness to the glory of God and maturity of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what heaven looks like. This is the issue. We all of us will wear a new t-shirt and the new t-shirt says Christ. Christ. Regardless of background, race, color, gender. Now this morning... Our text introduces us all to a doctrine known as the doctrine of adoption in the gospel. In my opinion, this doctrine is one of the most powerful pictures and humbling realities of the power of the gospel in humanity. Now, if you notice, this morning when I jumped up into the pulpit, I didn't have a funny story to give or a massive introduction. Do you know why? Because I'm ready to get to this. Let's get to this, right? So this morning, if you look with me, without any point, all right, then you can go ahead and bring up the, 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 the verse, though, 1 and 2. Look with me on 1 and 2. First off, I will remind you of what 29 says up above it, because what you see in 3, it goes into 4, and so you can call these really, these are bedfellows together. It 
It's a continuation. 29 says, and if you are in Christ, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, what I need you to know really quickly before we go on is this. Abraham's offspring according to promise. If you remember, Jesus, God had showed Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of people, many nations. This is thousands of years before Jesus Christ even comes. If someone, well, it's a, if you keep thinking in our minds as Christians, oh yeah, God had a plan uh, to open up for the Gentiles because the Jews just weren't being nice in the Old Testament. You're wrong. The plan had been for all of time. From the beginning, Abraham, before, before Israel was even Israel, before they, 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 they complained, before they bellyache, before they had the law, before they did all these things, God says to Abraham, you will be the father of a great nation. And from you, a child will come. He will, be the, he will be the savior of them all. But what I want you to understand is this is a plan from the foundation of the beginning of time, at least our time. And it says in verse 1 and 2, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. That's important. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, really quickly, and I'll probably come back to it at the very end of the sermon, is this word heir in our text. The word heir is a, is a person legally, legally entitled to the property or the rank of another on that person's death. Or if it's bequeathed to someone, say like in us in law, uh, you, can, you can sign over something in a will or, or, or make appropriate arrangements. It's an heir. It's someone who does not have that is getting ready to receive because of their connection with another. And it says here that we will be heirs. And I'll get back to that at the end. But first, I want you to see something about this particular section of heirs. It says that they will be children. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, and when I say he, you understand you can integrate that with she as well because it's speaking to all of us in Christ. The word child in our text comes from the Greek word, which means infant, one without understanding, helpless and unable. Now, all of us have had children. Many of us have been children, right? But we all, some of us have uh, all been children. Some of us have had children. If you've had children... You know, Judson's my fourth, uh, he's my fourth, he's my youngest one, but there was a come a time where Judson uh, could not feed himself. I mean, sure, he was on the ground licking dirt, but that's not what was going to see sustenance to him, right? And, and that was not good food, right? He needed help to eat. He could not change himself. He cried when he was hungry. Oftentimes, he was crying so much he couldn't even go to sleep. He had to be asleep. The, the, the nature of what you're seeing is that in this text, it says that we are children, and we are like this, unable to render anything for ourselves. We must be watched. We must be trained. We must be fed. We must be changed. We must be led. That is the concept of what you have before us this morning. And it says here, families, I want you to understand something about the first century Judaism or just in the Roman world, families in these days would assign certain capable and trusted, listen, slaves or, or servants in the home to act as guardians over certain children. And honestly, it was heir children. In other words, if a father owned uh, an estate or if he owned these things, that he had servants because he owned servants, but he had children. And he, he looked at the, the servants who were under him and he said, hey, I want you to watch my children. And many times in those days, those, those servants would watch those children. They would teach those children. They would train those children. In many aspects, unfortunately, some of these uh, servants would be more a mother and a father to them than their own mother and father would be to these children. And then they wanted them to watch them until they were fully grown. These slaves would virtually have full charge and care over the child's education and training, as I've already said, and welfare. Now, the child was subservient to them and could do nothing without their permission. They were caretakers. They were guardians. And while being an heir and a master over everything in time, these children 
would one day go and possess all that the, that the, the father or the person who led that home uh, owned. It would become theirs through heir, as an heir, bequeathed to them. But they were still until the proper time, while masters of everything, legally speaking, were still under slaves and servants, present fact and reality. Now, I remember when we were in, in, in Indonesia, oftentimes uh, some of the missionary families would they'd have these things, uh, we'd have pimbantus, they'd have pimbantus. And we kind of saw up close where sometimes literally moms and dads would, would take a, a, a house worker or something like that, and literally just their kids were basically being raised by Indonesians. Um, because mom and dad were busy doing things or, or whatever it may be. And th- these ladies, specifically, usually ladies in a Muslim country, but they would take care of their kids and watch them and, and do play with them. And, and sometimes, if they're trying to teach them Indonesian, would even become their teachers as well. Interesting thing is that it's interesting because if those, uh, those house workers or helpers lived in that house long enough, uh, it would have been interesting that the ones that they hold and they, they rock would one day maybe be, Specifically, if you're leaving in the Dutch uh, time frame that was Indonesia's history, this child that you love and take care of could one day have been the very one who wrote your paycheck and that you answered to as an heir. Yet they're responsible for them. However, all of this is dependent upon the appropriate time and decision of a father, specifically fathers or master. It was always at the wish and at the will of the father, the master, when this bequeathing would happen. And it was always dependent on the maturity of the child. In 1 Corinthians 3.11 it says, y'all know this, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There was a point that a father would look at a son or daughter, specifically in the Roman world, usually sons, but he'd look at a son and go, you have, you're ready. You're ready. Not a moment before, not a moment after. You are ready. You have become a man. Something happens to the status of a child that's wedding on themselves and can't eat and cannot feed themselves. When a father looks and says, the day has arrived. Everything in your life is getting ready to change radically because you are deemed now mature, an heir. Listen. God brought his children up in the law so that they may be led to the gospel. Do you remember that? Look with me real quick. Galatians 3.24, right in front of you. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. What does it say there? So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law of God was a pimbantu. The law of God was a guardian. The law of God was, specifically the law in other aspects too, was basically there to help to bring you to maturity. But brothers and sisters, listen to me. By the law, no one was going to be made mature. No one. It was leading them. It was, it was, it was the law was carrying these little babes to maturity. But it was to lead them to Jesus Christ and not dependence. All their lives on the law. An heir who, who spends all their time dependent on the Pimbantu in Indonesia or the servant. Can you imagine being 35 years old being rocked by your Pimbantu? That's gross. That's gross, right? That is what we have before us. But I want you to see something. The law was leading men and women into maturity, but the time had been set by the Father in sending his son, Jesus. In Christ, God says, now grow up. In Jesus Christ, he, he looks at humanity and he says, now mature, become whole. In other words, when you look at it, put away your oatmeal and start feeding on steak. You see, the Judaizers, they had been telling the Galatians that the law was a sort of graduate school for the mature. But Paul insisted that being under the law was really like being back in kindergarten. Text says elementary things. Elementary things. And listen to me really quickly. Anything apart from God's glory alone, anything apart from all of Christ, all of that is merely playing at faith. It's merely playing at religion. It's a toy. 
And have you ever watched kids in a sandbox trying to play? Try to give kids uh, a tablet when they're two years old. Do they know how to use it correctly? No, they're fumbling on it. They're slobbering on it. They're doing their thing, you know? Try to get this, this, this technical piece of equipment and let a kid play with it in a sandbox. Watch what happens. They're clumsy. They're clumpy. They don't know what they have in their hands. All religion is, apart from Jesus Christ and the glory of God alone and Jesus Christ alone, brothers and sisters, it is like children in a sandbox playing with something that they have no idea that they got their hands on, and it's clumsy, and it just doesn't look very natural. All religion is is the elementary things because people have not yet matured in Christ. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. If the Galatians wanted to be viewed as spiritual grown-ups, mature, then they would have to advance beyond the law only. They'd have to advance beyond their religion, beyond the tradition of men, Beyond the human teachings alone, Martin Luther has said, when the devil cannot ruin people by making them worse, he will ruin them by making them better. Let me say that one more time just in case you missed that. Martin Luther says, when the devil cannot ruin people by making them worse, he will ruin them by making them better. In other words, the road to hell is not so much paved with good intentions as it is with self-justification, self-righteousness, and self-worth in religion. I got this. Jesus is great and good and all, but he needs my help. I got this. All the heavy lifting with me. Remember Matthew 5, 20, it says, Jesus says, for I tell you, Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, unless your goodness, unless your right standing, this righteousness, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand what's being said here? Hey, you see all your religious people? You see all the men who know the law back and forth? They've got 15 doctrinal degrees. They follow it to a T. They want everybody to see them. They pray the best. They dress the best. They fast the best. They look the part the best. They part their hair the best. They eat the right foods. They do it all correct. You see them over there? Unless all of you in this room, righteousness exceeds that of those men, no one will enter the kingdom of heaven. You might be saying to yourself, oh, so we do have to be like Pharisees and better than. No, no, no. The point of the text, the point that Jesus is saying is, you've got to be like the Pharisees, but better than the Pharisees. There's only been one who is better than any Pharisee, and his name is Christ. His name is Jesus. The Pharisees did not even remotely come close. They were like little stumbling children playing clumsily with their religion when all before them they had Jesus Christ in front of them. They were children. These men, Pharisees, the religious among the people, were basically immature in knowing God. Now, I want to say something real quick, and we live in a hyper-political and polarized world. I'm not saying this because I'm making reference to anybody, okay? I, Donald Trump was asked a question. I want you to hear his answer, okay? I think that Joe Biden would have answered it probably the same way. Well, they don't even ask Joe Biden the question. So they're, that's, that's, they're, Kamala Harris, they don't get to ask this question. Before Donald Trump became president, now I want you to understand something about Donald Trump. Donald Trump being, I believe he actually is a very smart individual. You can't be successful like he is and not be smart. You can't succeed politically like he did and not be smart. He's a very brilliant and smart man. He is rich beyond our wildest, my wildest dreams, right? Now, some of you maybe not. You know, Donald Trump, he has, if you look what he has before him, I was thinking about all the wives he's had, and they're basically, honestly, you know, you know he, he likes a certain type of a woman, and I think he's proud of the women that he's been married to. He's had love, he's had all these things. He's been the most powerful man in the world. And at a faith leadership summit in 2016 in Ames, Iowa, when we lived there, he came, and he was asked a question 
uh, by Luntz, the guy who does a lot of polling. And he asked the question at the, the Faith Leadership Summit, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? Trump responded at that forum, and I quote, I am not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. If I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. Now, okay, that's fine. Okay, you go, okay, whoopsie-daisy. You know, he's at an evangelical summit. He's kind of, he's stumbling over things. I understand that happens specifically if you haven't walked very much in it. He doubles down. CNN, Jake Tapper asks a question because of this thing that happened at the leadership summit. You know, it's like red meat, specifically for liberals who are on this side of They were ready to jump on this. They ask him, hey, you think you want to rephrase or think about that answer you gave? Here's Trump's response. I quote, I have a great relationship with God. I have a great relationship with evangelicals. I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try to do nothing that is bad. Okay, 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 okay. First time, okay. Second time, come on. He's going to learn his lesson, right? A few weeks later, Anderson Cooper, boy, he was, he was ready. You know Anderson, some of y'all watching news, you know what I'm talking about. Anderson Cooper's like, <laughs> So Anderson Cooper asks him the question again. Hey, you want to rephrase that? Quote responds, I quote, I like to do the right thing where I don't actually have to ask for forgiveness. Does that make sense to you? Anderson Cooper, if you watch it online, it's going, it's kind of funny. But anyway, he goes, uh, does that make sense to you? You know where you don't make such bad things that you don't have to ask for forgiveness. I mean, I try to lead a life where I don't have to ask God for forgiveness. I, I, I just don't like to make a lot of mistakes. Now, I am not picking on Trump. You know, I voted for him once, right? Didn't know the time. I'm not trying to get political here, right? Don't y'all judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Here's the thing. I am not picking on Donald Trump. What I'm trying to say is one of the most brilliant men, one of the, one of the richest men, one of the ones who've got clout, one of the most powerful men in our country, in the world, he is stuck in the elementary principles of this world. He's big and, and, and strong and he's, and he's capable. But here, listen to his answers. He's like a little child who can't even play in a sandbox correctly. It's almost embarrassing. It, no, it's not embarrassing. It's sad. It's sad. Trump, like so many others, so many others, is not, well, I'm not picking on Trump here, not at all, are stuck in the nursery room of faith, not fully understanding Christ, who he is and what he has done, and how we or they should respond. May it not be said of us. Verses 4 and 5. But. One of my favorite words in the Bible is but, because it means something's getting ready to come. But. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God set forth his son. All our hopes are centered on the finished and completed work of Christ. Born of a woman is absolutely important. Oh, it doesn't matter if Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. It doesn't matter how he came. Yes, it does matter how he came. It matters plenty. Because what he did was he was born in the flesh, fully God and fully man. The hypostatic union, it's the, 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 you know, the, philosoph- the um, theological framework of it. But listen, let's bring it down. He's fully God, he's fully man. The thing is, is that Jesus Christ came, born of a woman, like every one of us was. And it says that he came, not only born of woman, but he was born under the law, which means that he was required to obey the law in order to stand before God righteous. And Jesus Christ comes, born of a woman, into a world of sin, in the fallenness of our flesh that's corrupted by sin. And guess what? Was not influenced by it. Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, he was able to meet the standard of God in this life that you and I are supposed to do with our flesh. Jesus Christ goes, did it. He did what the requirement was. In your flesh, we are to honor God. And none of us in our flesh can honor God. So God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do what we could not do in the flesh. And by being the flesh, God in Jesus Christ says, I accomplish it on their behalf, on for them. He does what you cannot do. 
but he comes in just the same way that every one of you have come. Oh, Jesus didn't understand. He would, no, he understands very well. And by the way, let me just tell you all something else real quick. He understands more than any of you. Because he stepped down from something so much farther than any one of you ever stepped up down from. To be alive today is to step up. For God to be in this world, he stepped down. Stepped down. So this morning, showing up this morning is not what frees us. Giving tithe is not what frees us. Being in a Bible study is not what frees us. Being good, kind does not free us. If we meet and gather for any other purpose and reason other than the outright adoration, focus, and celebration of all that Christ is and all that Christ has done, then for us it is all simply elementary principles of this world. It's religion. It's a serving of self. It's a worshiping and peddling of ourselves. Jesus is the death of all that. Charles Spurgeon has said, he is uh, quoted saying this, this is the trouble that I have with many pulpits today. The state of the pulpit in America is not very healthy in many places. Where a pastor or preacher may come here, and I think there's two extremes. They come and they get their Bibles out and they want to give you the law. Law, 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 do this, don't do that. Do this or else. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take God's word and I'm going to lovingly smack you across the face and almost as if they're like, I did my job if you were laid out, smacked with no hope. Call that legalists. On the other end, you have the others who step up in the pulpit and they may take God's word and they, they take one Bible verse and they take it out of context and they, they take a couple things here and there. And so what they do is they try to take God's word and, and basically they have a lot of jokes, they have a lot of stories, they have little things that will pick you up for the rest of the week and they'll sprinkle it here and there with a little bit of Jesus. As if somehow the sprinkle made it all of Christ. Their ideas, their quips, their quotes, their thing. No, uh-uh. Both of these are troublesome. Charles Spurgeon said over 150 years ago, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. A Christless sermon? Better yet, a brook without water, a cloud without rain, a well which mocks the traveler, a tree twice dead, plucked up by the roots, a sky without a sun, a night without a star. It were a realm of death, a place of mourning for angels and laughter for devils. Oh, Christian, we must have much more. We must have more of Christ. If Christ be your treasure, church, If it is Christ you worship, live and breathe, all for his glory, then the Bible teaches us as here that you are then, you are and will be known as those who are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Listen, this being adopted in the family of God is regardless of race, regardless of background, raising economic situation, the bad done to you or even the bad that you may have inflicted on others, You are not what you were, but what you are in Christ. I want to give you something real quick. It's for free. If anyone is bored with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if anyone is bored with Jesus, as if there's somehow another, I've heard all that, I got all that, now I'm ready to move on. Give me something new. Give me something better than all that. I'm ready to graduate past all that. Let me tell you something. You haven't, you're not passing the class. You don't graduate past Jesus. You don't, pass, you don't graduate past the word of God. You don't pass, graduate past the gospel. If you, feel, and then if, if you feel like you need to or you must, it may be simply because you haven't actually mastered the course. Once you taste and see and experience that which is the gospel, his word, Christ and his glory, you realize that there is nothing else that will ever satisfy. Remember what I told you? It's the thing that will fill you up and the thing that you never can be filled up with enough. That is the dichotomy and the paradox that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to explain one thing before I go into conclusion this morning. This idea of adoption, it says that we are heirs, we're children according to the promise. In the Roman world, adoption was very, very important. Why? Because honestly, in the Roman world, they viewed it like this way. You had kids who by birth... And that comes with a level of responsibility. But specifically in Romanism, in Rome, 
those who would adopt someone into their house, we're adopting someone by choice to be heirs of what they had. It, in a lot of ways, it was actually looked at as more important than, listen, birth right. In the Roman world, was, if, I look at, if I look at you, Scott, and say, I want you to be in my home, and you will one day be an heir of all things. Listen, listen, I love my kids. Y'all know that I love my kids? They were given to me as a gift, and I love every one of them. But I didn't choose any of them. You see what I'm saying? Where's Elijah at? I'll trade you in sometime, right? No, I love my kids. They were given to me. I'll die for them. But I didn't choose any of them. They were given to me as a gift. They're a gift. I want you to understand something about the orphanage of, that we are in. The doctrine of adoption is sometimes offensive to people. It really is. Theologically, sometimes people have a hard time with it, and that's okay. I'm going to explain this by way of illustration, and then I'm going to back off of it, and then we'll get into our conclusion this morning. I want you to taste and experience and see something in the gospel of Jesus Christ, something that takes away all boasting and all claims to being good enough. It, don't, don't raise your hand this morning, I mean, but I know that some of you, there's people in this room who have been adopted. Some of you have adopted others. I believe that adoption is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Kind of like marriage over here. Adoption is another beautiful picture of the gospel. We all of us are in the, we're all in the orphanage of life. You could say that we're in some ways we're in the orphanage of faith. Now here's the thing about this. We like to assign impure motives to God when he is an adopting God. Because we think that God cannot possibly adopt, I mean choose some and not all. Okay, I get it. Trust me, I get it. I used to wrestle with that myself. Not so much anymore, but I used to wrestle with it myself. But I want to show you something by way of illustration. All of you in this morning are in the orphanage. All of you have never had a family. None of you have had a mom and dad. And all of you have longed for one, and you've been praying for one for years. Now, my wife and I, Misty and myself, we have had our children, but we sat around a coffee table one day, and we said, you know what, we want, more. We want, to, give, we want to adopt a child or two. We would love to open up our home and adopt some. So we come to this, this place, which is the orphanage. And we come and we talk to the, uh, the head person who owns the orphanage. We say to the orphanage, hey, listen, we would love to open our home and start the process of adopting three children from this orphanage. Now, do you think that the woman who owns the orphanage or leads the orphanage, do you think that she sits there? Say, we love this, we, we love this. We love, when it comes to human things, we have, we're okay with it. We're okay with it. But when you apply that to God, we don't like those things. So watch this. You go up to the woman of the orphanage and you say to her, hey, look, we want to take three kids. Do you think that she's going to look at us and go, what do you mean, three kids? Oh, I'm appalled. Why wouldn't you take all of them? Oh, you arrogant people. Do you think I'm going to be, do you think that when I'm going to the orphanage, you think me and my wife, we show up, you think that we're going to be treated that way? Come on, y'all already, yeah, come on. It didn't take a lot. Y'all know that's not going to happen. What, what, maybe, oh, praise the Lord. Oh, we're so grateful that you would come and you would do these things. We show up. Now we look at everybody. We look at the orphanage. You know, there's one of those mirror, the thing glasses. And we sit there and we go, hmm, we want children, da-da-da, okay. My wife and I look at it and we go, we want Walter back there. We want that. He just goes, yes. I want Walter. I want, I want many of us. But here's the thing, I'm going to talk, Walter, you're a guy, I'm going to pick a guy, all right? Cheryl, we're going to take you too. We, we, my wife and I, we want to take you into um, our family. And then, and then TJ, we're taking you. I want to show you something real quick. Now, when we say we're going to take you three, I want to tell you something about you three. Y'all didn't, maybe not know this, but when my wife and I came and we were choosing you, you know what we, cho- we chose this morning? We chose the smelliest. The stinkiest, the kid that's in the back that's kind of like slobbering on himself that no one's wanted, got snot hanging out of his mouth, right? You know what I'm saying? The one who like shows show tunes, you know what I'm saying? Not very cool. My wife and I, we've chosen to take you out of this orphanage. And I'm going to tell you something real quick. By the way, you've been in this orphanage so long and everybody's always looked past you. They've never even given you the time of day. You've always been the one that everybody goes, oh, not that one. 
And me and my wife, we say one day, we choose you, we want you, and we want you to come live in our house. Now, in that moment, do you think the kids probably go, what do you mean? Why? Why don't you take all my friends? I'm not going. I mean, have y'all looked at Walter back there? This guy wants a home, right? Probably not going to happen. I want you to know something real quick. Adoption gives no one an ability to boast in who and what they are. Adoption is solely at the gracious will and declaration of another. If any of you are in Christ Jesus, heirs according to the promise, know this. It causes none of you to boast in anything save the cross of Jesus Christ and God's infinite mercy as being the adopting God. Listen to me. It may be offensive to your human sensibilities, but it is, it's fine for me and my wife to act like this. But we say, God can't do this. God created all things. He has every reason and right to do with it as he wishes. I'm going to tell you something about me. I am that child in the back of the room that no one has ever wanted. And I look in the mirror and I know me and my past specifically. And I say to myself, who would ever choose me? God in his mercy and his grace says, you are my son. And brothers and sisters, that causes me no place to go but low on my knees before God. What do I have to boast in? Save the grace and the mercy of an almighty God who receives all glory and all praise and all honor. You may ask the question, yeah, but who are the ones that he chooses? Who are the ones that at, at, in Abraham, through the beginning of the foundation of the world, I would choose for myself a people? from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. I don't know who they are. I never have known where I'd be God if I did. But one thing I do know, who are they? All those who come, come all you who are heavy laden. All those who come to Christ are Christ's. All those who are found by God are found by him in the orphanage of faith. And we have nothing to boast in, nothing to, to celebrate in except for a, the goodness of a really good God. Now, stop one second. There comes a point where I possibly could get that way, where I say, God, but why not all? Why doesn't everybody? But I want to tell you something about me. Maybe I'm telling on myself. I never get there in faith. Because at least to this day, at the age of 40 years old, I have still been shaken in my knees, out for the count, out for the breath, in contemplation, God, why would you even choose me? I've spent so much of my Christianity thinking about that concept, that I haven't thought about all the other ones. Why me? Some of you may be saying in yourself this morning, why you? Because God is good, and he is gracious, and he bestows upon faith. Your heirs according to the promise. How have you allowed the reality of adoption room to shake you to your core and keep us from boasting and help us to understand that we are all of us like Walter back there that nobody ever wanted? <laughs> Adopted, right? Someone wanted you, Walter. Verses 6 through 7 says, And because you are sons, and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The spirit of God is the proof and a guarantee. It's our confirmation, as we saw last week, as being sons and daughters of God. It's the t-shirt we wear. It's the tattoo stamped across our chest. It is the ring and the insignia of the king in whom we represent. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, the praise of his glory. 2 Corinthians 1, 22. And it is God who establishes us with Christ, you with, in Christ, who has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And then lastly, Romans 8, 14 through 16. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, this is what I'm saying really quickly. If we are truly in Christ, the Spirit of God rests in us. We're not perfect individuals. We're still in the flesh. But brothers and sisters, you need to know something about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves God. The Holy Spirit yearns for the glory of God. If any one of us is to claim that we are known by God, there has to be a sliver, a little chance of seeing the spark that is that we have the same view of God's glory and love of that glory that the Spirit of God has for God himself. I have met so many Christians in my life who claim Christianity with their mouths, but I'm still looking for a spark. Holy Spirit cries out with our flesh, Abba, Father. May we not just cry out with God with our spirit, but also, yes, with our flesh. It's fallen and not perfect, but it speaks the language of the Father. Are the fruits of the Spirit of God even being greater and greater in our lives? Are they experienced and seen by others in our professed walk with Christ? They must be because if He is in you, His voice in you, the love and adoration that He has for Himself must also be seen in you. Does this make sense? This morning, all I want to do is say this. I always tell you theologically, we can be in this room and we can disagree on things and open our Bibles and see what these things have to say. But I'll say this about the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption is to leave every single one of you walking out of this room understanding you have nothing, you have nothing to brag about. And I say that a gospel that makes me less in order to make God more, is fine by me. A theology that allows me to become, to decrease, so that he may, what? Increase is fine by me. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, that we who are in him, guaranteed in the Holy Spirit to be in him, are in him through adoption, and as heirs of Jesus Christ, with Christ. Let us pray.